Okay, well, welcome. We're going to get started tonight. And uh, we're in Judges chapter 15. Should have an outline there. But let's open in a word of prayer tonight as we look at uh, Judges chapter 15, just the last three verses. Um, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We, we thank you for your grace in our lives and thank you that you uh, have a constant care, a hand of care and providence on our, on our lives as your children. Lord, nothing comes into our lives unless it passes through your hands first and so forth. Father, we thank you for that constant overwatching care. And uh, Lord, we pray for the various needs in our own body and, and people are going through health things and other, other cares and concerns, family members. We pray that... Um, we would just be able to entrust into your hands all these cares and concerns and knowing that you're a God who answers our prayers. And Lord, as we look at the example of Samson tonight in a favorable light, Lord, we pray that you would uh, lead us and guide us and help us to apply the truths we learned to our own lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Amen. We're in First uh, or in uh, First Corinthians. We're in Judges chapter 15. Getting ahead of myself. Uh, Judges chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 18, 18 to 20. And so I'll, I'll read this, these verses for us and then do a little introduction and we'll go through them. It says in verse 18, And he was very thirsty, speaking of Samson after his battle. Uh, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and the water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he was revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So tonight we're going to be looking at Samson's finest hour. <laughs> As you know, if you've been here on our studies through Judges, we've looked at 12, this is the 12th one, the Judges of Israel, and we studied these Judges in the Old Testament, and we considered several of them who were great individuals who really... Uh, shown as, as bright lights in a dark place. And uh, when Israel was in trouble, God would send them a judge, a deliverer, and, and this judge would liberate them from their oppressors. And this happened time and time again. And most of the judges, for the most part, were faithful. They were obedient and godly people. Some of them weren't, but for the most part, you could say that is fair about all of them. We come to Samson, the 12th judge, and he's a little uh, off. He's a little different than the rest of the judges that we've been looking at. Uh, most of the judges we've studied lived by faith and were obedient to the will of God. Um, Samson, however, lived by a different drummer. He lived not by faith, but he lived in the power of his flesh. Uh, Samson spent most of his life trying to please, guess who? Samson. <laughs> and uh, physically, Samson was the most powerful, uh, imposing of all the judges. He was an incredible man of strength. But we're finding out that spiritually, he was the weakest. He really was. It just goes to show you what you see isn't always what you get. Uh, most of his exploits 
revolved around him seeking revenge against maybe those who have offended him in some way. He, he, he was very vengeful in his attitude toward life. And most of his exploits were um, arisen out of these, these sinful desires that he had for forbidden women. Women that God said don't have anything to do with these. He ran right for them. And so uh, that, that, that was part of his downfall, as we'll see. But more scripture is devoted to Samson than to nearly any other judge, period. But that scripture reveals a man who is not necessarily one we want to replicate or emulate in any way. Uh, Samson is a man whose life should be studied, I guess you could say, but not duplicated. Um, yet the life lessons we learn from his, his life, the life of Samson, teach us that really the greatest enemy we have is ourselves. That was the greatest enemy that Samson had, was himself. And it's true about us. If we can learn to conquer ourself, <laughs> we can walk in a way in this life with, with spiritual victory, with power, with God's blessing. But I fear that for most of us, there's more of Samson in every one of us than we'd like to admit. <laughs> um, at least I see that in my own life. And um, as we look at these verses tonight, we're going to see Samson's star never climbed higher, nor did his light shine brighter than it does in these three short um, verses here at the end of chapter 15. Um, in a moment of great desperation, he, we see him cast himself basically on the Lord by faith. And unfortunately, that's some, sometimes what it takes for people, right? We, we figure we got it all together. We got this thing under control. We can pull this off. We can do this. And we still acknowledge God is there, but you know, we're not driven to our knees in prayer to pray about anything because we, we can handle this. Well, Samson finally realized he was in a situation that was desperate. And he cast himself on the Lord by faith. And what's ironic is Samson is never stronger than he was during the moment of his greatest weakness. Um, and that's a biblical principle, by the way. And we'll be looking at that. And so on the heels of this great victory, he just got done... Uh, you know, killing thousands of these Philistines with a, or, uh, with a, uh, uh, a jawbone of a uh, donkey. He wipes them all out. He's doing it all because of vengeful reasons. But he has a great victory. And then he finds himself in this desperate situation. And that's usually how it happens. You know, God brings us through a victory. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves. We get a little cocky, we get a little prideful, and God has to humble us once again. So he allows something else into our life to show us that, no, you're really not in control. <laughs> and uh, you don't really have this in your hand. You need my help each and every day. And so he turns to God here in this desperate situation, and he finds not only help for the moment, which depicts the faithfulness of God, but he also finds hope for his future. And, and that's what happens when we throw ourselves before the Lord. He gives us hope in that moment, help in that moment, but he also gives us hope for the future because we know we're doing the right thing in our heart of hearts. 
So I want to spend some time tonight just considering these verses in Samson's finest hour, and hopefully it, it uh, translates to our lives as believers living in the world we live in as well. So the first thing here on your outline is Samson's condition. Samson's condition, verse 18. Now remember, the passage opens up with Samson just having killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. <laughs> That's a pretty big feat, okay? Um, I'm sure after the battle, he was worn out. It tells us there in verse 18 that he was thirsty. He was very thirsty. Um, he needed to be hydrated. It's like he had just run a marathon and his body was depleted. He needed some, some fluid. And I want you to notice a couple things related here to his condition. You know, the reason for it was that he just went through this heated battle with a thousand Philistines and wiped them all out. Samson is hot. He's tired. He's dehydrated. Uh, Judges 15.1 told us that this all began at the time of the wheat harvest. Well, the time of the wheat harvest is a time where it would have been hot. It would have been arid. And uh, it would have taken a tremendous physical toll on this individual, even though he was a strong guy, to wipe out a thousand men with the jawbone of a, a donkey. Um, and so there's reason for him to be in this situation. There's a reason for him to be thirsty. And you look at the reality of it. He says basically, and now shall I die from thirst? Uh, you've get, granted me this, this great salvation. Now I'm going to die from thirst into the hands of the Philistines, the, those who are uncircumcised. Those who are the enemy of God, the enemy of Israel, you're just going to let me die here because I don't have anything to drink after I did. You've, you've given me this great victory. And uh, Samson believes he has just come through a great battle and won a great victory only to die as a result of not having any water. Um, we've seen this play out in movies sometimes, sometimes in real life. People come through an incredible physical thing or something that they overcome their cancer and now they're cancer free and they get hit by a bus it's just like what is going on you know it doesn't make any sense all right and, and that's probably where samson was in his own life and sometimes god puts us in situations that don't make any sense for that very reason uh, and so for all of his great strengths samson was unable as strong as he was he was unable to help himself at this critical moment. Couldn't do it. And so God brought Samson to this point to teach him a very, very important lesson that we all need to learn probably multiple times throughout our lives. Uh, God allowed Samson to come to a place of, of total inability. Total inability that he might learn the truth that he was not self-sufficient. Let me ask you, have you ever been at a, at a spot of total inability? Have you ever reached a point in your life where you realize you just got to give up? There's nothing more you can do. You just wave the, the, the white flag and say, okay, I, I, I've done everything I can do at this point. I just got to let go. You know, it's that feeling when you, you're flying somewhere and you get on the plane and you realize... Up until that point, man, you've been going through your head. Did I remember this? Did I remember that? 
And once they close the plane door, you go, you know what? It doesn't matter. Because <laughs> if it's not with me now, it's gone. You know, I don't have it, period. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's kind of a relaxing sense. It's like, okay, I can't do about it, anything about it, even if I did forget something. Um, and it's the same way in life. Sometimes we get to this point where we just have to totally realize that we are completely insufficient in every way. We're not self-sufficient, as the world would have us to think. I mean, he may have been able to kill a thousand Philistines. Think about it. One man killed a thousand men. I mean, even if you were to do that with a machine gun, that would be an incredible feat, right? He did it with the jawbone of a, of a donkey. But he still needed God to meet the most basic needs of his life. And see, that's what people misunderstand today. They got the two cars in the garage. They got the nice house, the nice condo. They got the good job. They got the wonderful family. They got everything. And so then you tell them, you know what, you need a Savior. They say, what? Why? Why would I need that? This is, life's going well for me right now. Um, and God has to bring them to a point where they're broken. And sometimes he has to strip away those things out of their lives to the point where, wow, okay, maybe it's not as, as great as it looks. And they finally realize, yeah, they do need a Savior. That is the most basic need of life. It's interesting here, it's, it's depicted as water. And yet, Jesus himself is, says, hey, if, if you drink of the water I'm giving you, you'll never thirst again in the New Testament. And so Samson was taught the valuable truth that without him, without God, you can do nothing. That's what the Lord told us in John 15, 5, is it not? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he says, he is it that bears much fruit. But apart from me, apart from the Lord, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. And the, the indication there's nothing of any value to God. I mean, you may be able to do stuff, but it's not going to be any value to God and his purpose and his plan. And this is a, the lesson that we want to learn from Samson as well. Because many times I think all of us act as if we're self-sufficient. Um, but the truth is, without him, we are, we are literally helpless as babies. We are dependent on him for the air we breathe. Did you ever think about that? If God just said, you know, I'm going to turn off the air. You wouldn't have any air. You'd die within moments. You'd be dead. You didn't have water. I had to go several hours without water before this procedure. And it's like, wow, I woke up this morning, my mouth kind of parchy and I was able to brush my teeth, so I got a little moisture in there, but I couldn't drink it. it. You know, there was something about, after the thing was over, it gave me a glass of water to drink. It wasn't even cold, like lukewarm hospital water, but it tasted so good, right? I mean, it, it's silly, but water is, is so important to us, and yet we just take it for granted. Or the food we eat. The food we eat. Um... And, and for that matter, everything else we enjoy in this life. You know, we are dependent upon our God 
for all those things. And when we forget that, when we forget that very essential truth, God will sometimes work in our lives in ways to remind us, uh, excuse me, you need me. You're not self-sufficient. You need me. There's an old song people used to sing, I can't even walk without you holding my hand. That's how our relationship should be with God. We can't even walk without him holding our hand. We're that unstable. We're that needy. We can't do anything without him. 2 Corinthians, if you turn over there, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaks of this in his own life. And remember, Paul was not just some religious leader of the day. He was the Apostle Paul, right? He was a man of spiritual stature. Wrote most of the New Testament. God used him in an incredible way. And so you can see that sometimes when, when people use men like this to this degree, they may have a tendency to think of themselves possibly a little more than they should, a little more highly than they should. And so what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, look at what he says. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, God, God knew Paul's limits. God had blessed Paul incredibly with the ability to teach and to preach and proclaim the gospel. And had wonderful success in his ministry. But he said, you know what? I don't want this guy getting conceited. I don't want him to think it's all about him. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, God was continually revealing to Paul what he was to write. I mean, you know, once in a while when, when God sheds a little light on a scripture that's already revealed, we get excited. Can you imagine the feeling it must have been? You sit down with an empty piece of paper, and all of a sudden God says, write this down. Wow, okay. <laughs> and you begin to realize you're literally writing down the words of God as he reveals them to you? He says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. We're not going to get into what it is. It could have been a myriad of things. It could have been a person. It could have been a literal ailment. We don't know. But it was sent to harass me to keep me from being conceited. God put a hedge of protection around Paul. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, whatever it was. He just wanted it gone because it was uncomfortable. It, it reminded him that he was needy. He didn't like that. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, look at this, is made perfect in weakness. You know, we, we want the power of God in our lives. I don't think there's a person in here that knows, knows Christ as their Savior that would say, oh, I want to be a weak Christian. I don't want to know the power of God. I just want to kind of you know, wander around here in the darkness. No. You want to be a strong. You want to sense the power of God as it work in your life. Well, guess what? It only happens in your weakness. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, look at that, with weakness. That, that goes against everything we're taught in our society. That goes against everything we're taught growing up. 
you know, content with weakness? What are you talking about? No, you've got to work harder, strive, get to the top. Paul says, no, I'm content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships. I'm content, he even says, with persecutions and calamities. Unforeseen events of accidents, things that, that cause him potential harm in his life. He says, I'm content with that. That's not, not a big deal. I'm okay with that. Because you know what? And look at what he says. For when I am what? Weak, then I am strong. This is what played out in Samson's life. Verse 11, he says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. This was a lesson that Paul had to learn. And God made sure that he learned it. And guess what? We're not above Paul. We need to learn this same lesson every day. We need to learn the lesson that, you know what, says very clearly, uh, you know, we, we need God continuously in our lives. And this is the condition that we find Samson in. This condi- condition of he's, he's thrust into this situation where he is literally unable to help himself. And it's, just, it's not like he's facing another thousand men. He's facing what? Thirst. His tongue is parched. He can't do anything about it. And he thinks he's going to die because of it. Kind of silly, but this is where God took him. And so you look at his cry, Samson's cry, in this moment of great weakness in verse 18. Samson does probably the smartest thing he has done in his entire life up to this point. What does he do? He calls upon the Lord. He calls upon the Lord. Um... I mean, in this, this short 27-word or so prayer, Samson speaks volumes. He speaks volumes about himself. He speaks volumes about his God. So let's look at this prayer that, that Samson utters through his parched lips. It's, first of all, it was a cry of humility, a prayer that's poured from the lips of, of Samson, is, it's, it's vastly different from, if you just jump back a couple verses, to verse 16. What he said there, the little poem and little song he came up with about himself. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. Where's the focus in that? It's on Samson. It's completely on Samson. He had a problem, an eye problem in his life, really. I mean, it was all about him. And he quotes this poem about his own greatness because he had this incredible victory. He doesn't give any glory to God. He claims all the glory for himself. This is just a couple verses previous to this. I think Samson, at that point, in verse 16, he failed to remember what happened in verse 14. Jump back to verse 14. It says, when he came, the the Philistines came shouting to meet him. What's it say? Then the what? The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Samson forgot all about that in verse 16. It was all about him. I'm a superhero here. 
You know, you cannot, God cannot idly sit by while you steal his glory. He will not sit idly by while you steal his glory. And so God had to put Samson in place, in a place of need, and he did that. And so Samson has brought, been brought to the end of his abilities. He, he, he utterly humbles himself before God and he acknowledges his utter dependence upon the Lord. And, and by his own words, he knows that unless God intervenes at this point, there's nobody pressing swords against his back or his neck. But unless God intervenes at this point, Samson really feels in his heart he will die. That's how critical this is. It's no longer a matter of personal glory for Samson. It's a matter of survival. <laughs> it's a matter of survival. And you know what? It's a really good, I think, reminder of how we should approach the Lord. You know, uh, we see a lot of people today approaching the Lord uh, in a way that's not honoring to him. You know, we should never, ever come to the Lord making our demands of him. That's not our place. We should never come to the Lord with the expectation that somehow he owes us something. You hear this in a lot of the word of faith thing. Oh, you've got to demand this and you claim this and you claim that. I don't think so. We should... We are instructed and we should come to him, what, humbly, with a broken heart, remembering that he is the what? He's the potter, we're the clay, right? He's the one molding and fashioning us. We're not molding and fashioning God. We should come before him remembering that he owes us absolutely nothing, nothing. But that in his grace, he has promised to give us everything which is just an incredible thing. God doesn't owe any of us anything, but he promises. Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches. Where? In glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise from God. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34, Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he relates it to the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your span of life? Being worrisome, being anxious about thing, things, it does not add anything. It, it doesn't help you at all. If anything, it hurts you, physicians tell us. Verse 28, he goes on, he says, And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. So he talks about the birds. He talks about the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In other words, get some perspective. Verse 30, he says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not 
much more clothe you. Oh, you have a little faith, he says. Where's your faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And then the capstone of this section, but seek first what? The kingdom of God. Get your priorities straight. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then guess what? All these things, all the things he just mentioned will be added to you in God's timing. God's not, God's not going to allow you to be in complete devastated need. He's not going to allow you to die of thirst, as Samson was thinking. Verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. <laughs> Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's such a wise statement. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you take your first fresh breath of air and you get out of bed, just praise the Lord you're alive. Praise the Lord he saw fit to give you another day. You know, and, and don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about yesterday, just day by day, day by day, moment by moment. That's how we're to live as faithful followers of Christ. Even in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we've already been blessed, past tense, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what awaits us. And we should come to him remembering that he has invited us to come to him. Boldly, by the way, as, as Hebrews 4.16 says, we come before the throne of grace boldly. But even as we come boldly, we should also come as little children. We don't come into his presence proudly. Boldly and proudly are two different things. We should come as little children with a humble heart and a meek spirit looking to him for the things that we need. I mean, when you think of, of a little child, a tiny child, not a teenager, because by, by the time they get a teenager, they got a little attitude, you know. <laughs> They've learned a lot of bad things. But an innocent little child. I mean, how do they come to their parents? I mean, usually they come to their parents very innocently. They come with their hands out, right? They just pick me up. They, you know, their hearts are wide open. They're very vulnerable, they have absolute faith that they will receive what they've come after from their parent. They're not afraid, you know, when the little child comes up and wants to be picked up by the mother, the mother's going to punch the baby in the face. They're not afraid of that. Why? That, you know, I mean, I'm sure that's happened by some evil parents. But that's not in the heart of a child. A child comes innocently. Hey, I'm here to be picked up. They're not thinking this might not be the appropriate time. Maybe you're busy. They don't care. They're just coming innocently. They don't come demanding, but they come with an innocent expectation, believing that the one who is looking over their, their provision will give them their heart's desire. And that's the kind of attitude we need to remind ourselves to have before God. We don't come demanding, but we do come boldly. But we come as a child. Luke 12, 32 says, Fear not, little flock, 
For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is what God desires to do. So when we come before the Lord, we need to be reminded here, as Samson was, it was a cry of humility. But it was also a cry of honor, secondly, a cry of honor. Not only did Samson humble himself and and look to God to have his needs met, but he also took the time to exalt God in his prayer. He took time to exalt God. Notice the three ways that God, that Samson honored the Lord when he prayed. First of all, he acknowledged God's power. I mean, Samson gives all the glory for this victory to God. He's not repeating what he did back in in verse 16. Yeah, 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 it's all about me. No. He says, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Lord, this this is you and you're just working through me. You deserve the praise. Samson acknowledges the fact that it may have been his hand that held the the jawbone of that donkey, but guess what? It was God's power that gave him the victory. That's a tremendous lesson for us. Sometimes we act like we can just make it on our own. But the fact is, is that every victory in this life is a gracious merciful gift of our God. And we need to take time to acknowledge His power in our lives. Just ask yourself this question. How long has it been since you've taken time, since you've praised Him for the victories that He has given to you in your life? He is worthy to be acknowledged for His power. Think of all the prayers that he's answered on your account. Think of all the times that he has enabled you to serve him when maybe you thought you couldn't. Think of how many times he has made a way where there seemed to be no way. We sing that song, God Will Make a Way, by Don Moen. I don't know if you know where that song came from, but he tells the story of why he wrote that song. He says, a tragic, the tragedy of epic proportions was the background of the writing of Don Moen's most influential song, God Will Make a Way. Don Moen says this, my, my wife's sister and her husband, Craig and Susan Phelps, were involved in a car accident during a ski trip they were taking from their home in Oklahoma to a resort in Colorado. Way out in the Texas panhandle, an 18-wheeler hit a rear panel of their van with such force that all four of their children were thrown out of the vehicle. The children had just left their seats where they were buckled in to lay down for a nap on a bed positioned in the rear of the van. It was the darkness. In the darkness and the shadows, only the crying of the severely injured children made it possible for mom and dad to find them, all except one. They finally located Jeremy, lying behind a nearby fence. He was already dead. His neck had been broken. Craig, the father, a medical doctor, picked up his son and tried to revive him. But God said to him, Jeremy is with me. 
you deal with those who are living. And so they sat for 45 minutes out in the wilderness alongside the highway on the Texas Panhandle waiting for an ambulance to arrive. Don Mullen continues, he says, they asked me to sing at the funeral, so I boarded the plane the next day, March 19, 1987, and headed for Oklahoma. And as I sat on the plane wondering what I should say to them, I began to read in the book of Isaiah. My eyes focused like a laser beam on chapter 43, verse 19. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Instantly, Don Moen says, the Lord gave me a song to sing to them. I sketched it out on a legal pad, intending to sing it at the funeral. However, they had already planned to ask me to sing another song. So I sang the requested song instead. After the funeral, I was sitting with them, holding them in my arms. I cried with them, and through my tears, I said, the Lord gave me a song for you. And he says, I began singing, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He said, I made a tape copy of the song for Susan. I knew that when all the people had gone and everything was said and done, there would be days when she needed to hear that God was working in ways that she couldn't see. And as you know, the song continues. It says, he works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. Well, Susan, Jeremy's mother, later related how she made a quick decision between the time she got out of the van and the time they found her son. She made a choice between becoming bitter and angry or accepting God's plan for their family at that time. She agreed that God really did make a way for them during that dark tragedy. And that's what Isaiah 43, 19 says, I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. We need to be reminded of that. He acknowledged God's power. But he also acknowledged God's person, Samson did. Not only does Samson praise God for his power, he also acknowledges God's person. Samson calls himself what? Your servant, he says. And with that statement, Samson appears ready to, the knowledge, to acknowledge God as his master. And this is why I say it might be Samson's finest hour. Because he finally got the priorities of his relationship with the Lord in the right order. Through all this heartache. But still, it seems like that's what happened. Up until now, up until this time, Samson had been the master, and God basically only got the leftovers of his wasted life. And now Samson appears ready to bow to the authority of God. And once again, there's a lesson here for us. Sometimes we fail to remember who is the master and who is the slave. We fail to remember that. It's very easy to think that we're the master of our own life. We're not. Especially as a child of God. 
we're a slave of Christ. I would remind you today that when God saved us, when He did, He purchased onto Himself. He purchased us. We are His. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Well, what does that matter, Paul? So glorify God in your body. He owns exclusive rights to our lives. He alone has the power. He alone has the right to direct the course of our lives. He is the master. We are the slaves. We have to remember that because we we so quickly think that somehow we are. That we just have the freedom to go out and make our own plans and do whatever we want. That's not the case. And then thirdly, not only does Samson acknowledge God's power in person, but also his, his preeminence. Samson is worried that he might die and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised, the, the Philistines. He seems to be concerned that if he dies in this manner, somehow the Philistines will take his body and use his death as, in a way that may dishonor God. So Samson prays that God will spare him so that, that God may not be dishonored. And that's what they would do with his body. They're, they were I mean, very much like what we saw ISIS do to those they executed. Put them on poles and all kinds of horrible things with their bodies. That's what the Philistines did to make examples of people. And at this single moment in time, Samson's focus does not appear to be on himself maybe for the first time in his life, but it appears to be on on the glory of God, on what would give God glory. I mean, that says something, once again, to teach us practically, I pray. God's preeminence and his glory should be the overriding factor in every decision, in every action we make. You know, people come all the time and they'll say, Pastor, I have a question for you. What should I do in this situation? And usually it's not a black and white, you know, I can't just go to a verse. Oh, you know, you're asking me if you should sleep with your neighbor's wife. Well, no, you shouldn't do that. You know, it's not like that kind of a question. Usually it's, it's, it's a question that, you know, involves a lot of different things. And in the end, I always say the same thing. I think you have to make the decision that gives God the most glory. First Corinthians 10.31, right? What's he say? So whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever you do, what? Do all for the glory of God. Everything we do should be, come under that umbrella. I feel oftentimes that we, we think about ourselves before we ever take God into consideration. We do as we please. We do what we want to do. We go where we want to go. We act as we want to act. And we have no regard for how our deeds reflect sometimes upon the Lord. So our first consideration in life as believers should be to ask ourselves, will this action, will this phrase that I'm about to utter, will this thought, whatever, will it glorify God or will it diminish his glory? Will it glorify God or will it diminish his glory? And 
for so many people, unfortunately, the glory of God never even flickers on the radar screen of their life. They don't even think about it. Our goal should always be to exalt him in everything we do. Every action, every thought, every word should be considered in the light of how it impacts the glory of God. Now, we don't do that perfectly. Nobody does. But that's what our goal should be. After all, the primary goal of our lives is to bring glory and honor to the God who redeemed us, is it not? So we see Samson's condition, his cry, verse 19, his consolation. His consolation. It says, And God split out the hollow place that is at Lehi, and came, and water came out of it. God, God's response. When Samson prayed, God heard him, and guess what? God answered his prayer. Some translations say God clave a, a, a hollow place that was in the jaw, speaking of the, the jaw of the, the donkey, and there came the water there out. Um, a lot of people have issues with that because, remember, he was a Nazarite. He's not supposed to be around dead things and all that, so would God actually do that? But another translation, that same word can be, translated Lehi. So it seems that God hollowed out a place that is at Lehi and the water came out of it there. God met his need for his thirst um, out of that. Uh, Either way, God answered his prayer. Um, And it's a reminder to us that we serve a God who hears and is willing to answer our prayers when it aligns with his will. Um, I mean, that's what really matters here. Is that God heard the cry of this man and, and God answered his prayer. And because God invites us to pray. And yet, in any church, I don't care what church it is, the least attended time or service or ministry is the prayer. When, it, when there's time for prayer. It's the least attended out of all. You wonder why that is. If we really believe this. I mean, Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. He promises to hear us when we pray. Isaiah 65, 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. He promises to answer our prayers. Matthew 7. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if he asks, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? I mean, it's within the heart of God to bless us with answered prayer. No prayer is too small. No prayer is too large. We're invited to come and pray to Him. We mentioned before, Hebrews 4.16, let us come with confidence or let us come boldly. Let us draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
We are invited to cast our our cares, our concerns, the anxieties we have. We're called to invite, uh, cast those upon the Lord. First Peter five seven, casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. I think sometimes we forget as believers that God really cares for us. He's on our side. God has made great promises to his people regarding prayer. And when we pray, we will see him work in the power of his glory. And guess what? If we refuse to pray, if we're not willing to come to the prayer, guess what? We're not going to see nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing happen. James 4.2 You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You covet and you obtain. You cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask, James says. We need to think of this personally. We need to think of this corporately as a church. I mean, is it a burden on your heart that you know when you come here on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night, that people, I pray, are going to hear truth. They're going to hear someone, whoever it may be, expound the Scriptures in an honest, authoritative way. And that people need to hear that? Is that a burden on your heart? Is it a concern why... There's not a hundred people here on a Wednesday night. Or there's not a hundred people on Sunday morning. It's a concern to me. Well, are we praying about these things? Are we asking God to, to bless our church with families? Yeah, people are moving out of California left and right. We can say that all day long. That doesn't mean he's not going to bring others. I mean, God can bless us with multiple families, with multiple children. But do we really want it? Are we willing to invest the time and pray for it and ask him with expectation, saying, God, look, you know what? It's not like we're doing this with false pretense or wrong motive. We want it for your glory. We want the truth to be heard. We want this church to be a light in the darkness of the Bay Area that's needed so much. But are we praying? Are we asking God for this? We should be. Well, also here, we see Samson's revival, not just God's response, but Samson's revival. When Samson prayed, God heard him. God answered Samson through the great miracle by giving Samson what he needed at the the weakest moment of his life. When Samson took what God gave, his strength was revived. Samson experienced physical revival. He was able to continue living. He went from dying at one moment to to feeling revived the next. Like Samson, I think many of us need revival at times. And this is something God grants. But I think there are two basic times in life when God's people need revival personally. 
The first is in times of wickedness. Times of wickedness. Because in times of wickedness, God's people have a tendency just to kind of cluster together and panic. (laughs) I mean, we are living in a wicked time. From the top down, all you see is wickedness. You see deceit. You see lies. You see... It has nothing to do with politics whatsoever. It has to do with the human hearts and their desire for greed and power and money, sex, and everything else. It's wicked. And these are times the churches should be gathering together and asking God to revive us, to keep us pure, to keep us holy, so that we can be a a light in the darkness. And the second time we need revival is in times of weakness. And I think there's never been a time where the church has probably felt weaker, in all honesty, speaking of the church in general. I mean, they shut the church down, for goodness sakes. If that's not weakness, I don't know what is. And during both those times, we need the Lord to miraculously open up his word and give us the resources we need to have our strength restored. If we could ever drink deeply of the Word of God, we would seek God's deliverance from our times of wickedness and from our times of weakness. We would see Him revive our our weary souls. We would see Him use us in even greater ways. And see, this is a time where God's children heed to the Word of God. We cling to the Word of God. We embrace its message. And we live out what it says each day faithfully. That's why James says in James chapter 1, verse 22, be not, but, do, uh, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's a lot of people who are hearing the word of God, not just in this church, but other churches, faithfully every week. But guess what? They're not doing it. They're not doing it. There's much benefit in hearing, heeding, honoring the word of God, but there is only defeat in ignoring what God has to say. God has given us a a well filled with refreshing, pure water. We call it, what? The Bible. We call it this book. May we drink deeply from its refreshing streams so that we may be revived in our spirits and our hearts to live for him and his glory each and every day. And it's refreshing when I talk to people and they're talking about, you know, we really want to have this kind of Bible study. We want to have that kind of Bible. That's great. That's great. Let's do it. It's very important to gather the church together around his word. I mean, in the New Testament, what they do, they did it daily. They went from house to house. I mean, we, if we feel, we feel real good about ourselves if we can check the Sunday box and the Wednesday night box. Can you imagine if we had church every night? I mean, I can't conceive of that in the Bay Area. That's what they did. It was that important to them. So lastly here, we looked at his condition, his cry, his consolation, and his change. After the events at Lehi, Samson appears to change his ways. We are told... In verse 20, we're not told a lot, but it says he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. 
We don't have any record of what Samson did in those 20 years. None of his exploits are recorded for us. But there are two quick observations I would make from this verse. I think it was a time of obedience. Up to this time, Samson had lived his life in disobedience. Now it appears that he settles down and obediently serves the Lord for 20 more years. And it, it reflects in his attitudes. It reflects in his actions. And that's the kind of obedience that God is looking for in our own lives, in the lives of his own people. He wants us to honor his will. Uh, John fourteen fifteen says, If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Um, he wants us to yield to his authority in Romans 12, verses 1. And two, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He wants us to be able to be a people who are standing for him all the time, in the midst of all the wickedness in this world we see going around us. In Romans 13, Paul writes in verse 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality or quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we need to be very clear. It was a time of obedience but it was also a time of order it seems that the text seems to suggest this 20 year period of time was a time of peace for the people of israel samson was able to subdue the philistines he was able to faithfully lead the people of god for 20 years samson and the people of israel submitted themselves to the will of god and as a result they experienced his peace in their lives i mean if we want to enjoy the peace and blessing of god in our lives and experience tranquility in our spiritual lives, we should ask God to bless our lives. We should live for him in a way that he does bless our lives. Um, this also reminds us that God is leading us to a place of stability. His desire for us is that we simply walk with him day by day. And that implies a simple, consistent, daily walking with God. It doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be rocket science. It's a way of life in which we simply walk with Him. We yield to Him. We honor Him in all the things, day by day. It's a walk of life in which we are not up one day, down the next, you know, back and forth, all this stuff, in and out, hot and cold. We are just faithful. That's what God wants. He just wants faithfulness in our lives as we walk with Him moment by moment. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We'll be looking at this on Sundays in a couple weeks. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing 
that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What is God looking for? He's looking for faithful obedience to his will. 1 Corinthians 4.2 Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful. Think of Enoch, Genesis 5.22. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. He walked with God faithfully. I mean, so we see here, Samson made a ton of mistakes in his life. He blew it time and time again. But when he humbled himself under the hand of God and he submitted to the will of God, what happened? He achieved victory in his life. For the first time, spiritual victory. I mean, I'm reminded that sometimes I can be very stubborn at times. I can want things to be my own way instead of going... God's way. And if I'm not careful, I can be a lot like Samson. But we have to remember, what does God want? God wants us to remember that he's a very, very present help in time of trouble. That's when he, he wants to help us. And if we'll humble ourselves before him and walk in his will and do what he has called us to do faithfully, we can experience this Christian victory that we read about. So let me ask you a couple questions. Has God brought you to a place of weakness? Is he seeking to humble you before him? Are there areas of your life that are not yet yielded to God today? Do you have some need that you need to bring before the Lord today? Maybe you need a revival from a time of wickedness and weakness. Maybe God has spoken to you about some need in your own personal life. You know, my encouragement to you, if he's reaching out to you in any way, please respond to him and let him have his way. You can't go wrong with that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Samson's example here and this turn in his life. And Lord, he was... By far not a perfect man. And none of us are perfect at all. And Lord, we need you every moment of every day. And and Father, we pray that you would remind us of that. Keep us reminded of that. Even if that means to have a thorn in the flesh. Even if that means to have things come into our lives that are uncomfortable. I pray that we would not grow complacent in this Christian life. That we would be ever pressing on toward the call of of God in Christ Jesus. And Father, we thank you that you do provide a way, um, even when there seems to be no way. And so, Lord, we pray that you would renew our hearts, our minds, with this message tonight. We pray you'd bless our fellowship afterwards as we discuss, discuss amongst ourselves and fellowship. And uh, we just uh, pray for... Um, Christoph and Barbara and, and others in our congregation who are traveling. I think of uh, uh, Jenna being away and, and others. Father, we pray that you would uh, watch over them, care for them, and bring them safely back to us as well. And thank you for your constant care in our lives. And if there's any here tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that even now they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
that they would acknowledge their need of a Savior before a holy God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.